You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. And Herds, it's time for a new story. And what a story it is. Yeah, we're dealing with Too Many Cooks by Rex Stout. Uh, and the larger-than-life detective Neurowolf. Uh, we'll be covering chapters uh, 1 to 6 inclusive today. The introduction of this murder between, well, chefs. <laughs> it's... The, the premise of this novel is that 15 of the best chefs in the world mm-hmm. get together in well, a country house. It's supposed to be 15. Some of them have died. Yeah, yeah. The best chefs in the world, however many, get together yeah. in a country house. One of them gets murdered and everybody knows who it isn't. Yeah. It's it's not the ones who have died. And it's it's not Wolf because he's not a chef. He's a guest speaker. Um. <laughs> <sighs> it's so absurd. The premise is ridiculous. But the number one thing that this book has, mm-hmm. pun intended, uh-huh. is flavor. This is true. This is entirely accurate. Oh. It is an absolute joy to read through. The the cadence with which the characters speak in this book, the amount of time that we spend talking about trains and food and more food <laughs> is phenomenal. We spend the first four chapters or so just talking about how lovely it is to be at this, the, the, the Kanawha Spa, just eating food together and cooking and how wonderful that is. Um, it's ridiculous. I've never read a murder mystery book that spent so much time self-indulgently discussing its subject matter. And not to mention, you know, the the paragon of character in this mm-hmm. story that is Archie Goodwin, our perspective, our Watson, mm-hmm. our hero, Let's be clear here. Nerewolf is our detective, but Archie, uh, he, he subscribes to a very specific notion in this novel. He, he supplies us with an important role, and that is literally the legs of our detective. <laughs> the kind of the gimmick that we have is that Nerewolf is this large, lazy, indulgent, much as the book is, man. And he's an intelligent, you know, he's an incredibly competent detective. But he hates going places. He hates walking. He loves to send Archie out on errands. Um, <laughs> there's one part in particular where he has to call the sheriff, Mr. Tolman, to his room, and he just sends Archie out. He says, I don't know how you're going to convince him, but you got to do it. There is no other way that, that this book would progress without Archie's help. And just the way that he presents everything with so much character. Mm. Like, we've just come from S.S. Van Dyne, who influenced Rex Stout a lot in terms of the style and setting and structures of his story. But the one thing that Rex Stout did not inherit was the blank slate, Mm. faceless characters. Mm -hmm. Everyone here is vibrant and everyone here is subject to the extremely subjective opinions of Archie Goodwin. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Everyone ends up with nicknames. Everyone ends up with epithets. Mm. I love it. I love it. He's beautiful. I I really love the dynamic that these two characters have and watching them trying to solve this mystery together. Um, and one thing that really does stand out to me as we're comparing this to Van Dyne's work, we're, we're often told about how, you know, uh, particularly Markham and Philo Vance, you know, they have this like friendly yet they don't like each other kind of relationship. I really felt that in this novel. The, the relationship that Nero and Archie has where they're constantly making quips at each other and, like, it's not always clear they're getting along, but Archie really comes through to it. He he still runs around and does everything that Nero Wolf needs. He is instrumental to the the solving of this whole, this whole case. I know that 
Rex Stout's relationship with his work wasn't particularly attached. Um, our, one of our producers went through and did some research. Shout out to James, our producer for this. Shout Apparently, uh, he began writing each book on the 18th of October each year and finished it sometime <laughs> in April. That's and excellent. afterwards would just spend the rest of his year gardening, which I know some authors in the modern age would love to have that kind of luxury after finishing yeah. a book to just be able to stop. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what that's what uh, Nero Wolf wants to exactly. do. Exactly. He wants to go home and tend to his orchids and, and drink 49 types of brandy, and that's what he does. That's what he wants to do, but he's been caught up in this awful murder case that is quite the bother. Yeah. Well, speaking of food, uh, I know that you've said, you know, the best part about this book is something that's actually in the book. Oh, yes. But I want to dispute this because I have gone on a whale of a of a of a of an experience outside of the book itself. So tell. I want to talk about Too Many Cooks. It wasn't just a book when it first came out. It was a cultural phenomenon, so to speak. Because when this book came out, in the first edition of the book, in the hardcover, um, there will be printed 35 recipes for the different meals that are oh. described within the novel itself. Oh and my. beyond that, uh, Rex Stout himself went on a tour of America with like, there was like a revolving stage <laughs> and a Hollywood rider and like all of these musicians and actors that they had on this big show that they took all around America what? to promote this book in, in part with the, the American magazine. Uh, it's crazy. And, yeah, so you can actually find the recipes okay. online. <laughs> so I knew that this book came with recipes. I did yes. not know about this tour. Yes. That is amazing. It's the uh, the Cook's Tour, I believe. Put yeah. book tours these days to shame. Yeah, yeah dude. They it's had fantastic. a traveling band? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They had everything. Um, I've actually found there is a <laughs> there is a site called Inspired by Wolf. That's Wolf with an E on the end. Uh, word, WordPress.com. And there is some fine person who has detailed, cataloged, nay, their experience in trying to replicate all of the uh, the recipes in the book and also some that they've tried for themselves from, from other novels, from things that are mentioned. It's insane. Now, I suppose in this murder mystery, Hertz, we should actually address the murder mystery. Oh, do we have to? I, but I love everything else so much. Uh, you're right. You're right. It, the, the murder mystery is really not the best part of the story, and <laughs> I'm completely okay with that. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's not necessarily straightforward, but we're presented with these 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 15 or, well, less cooks, um, and we're even given a list of all of them uh, on a handy-dandy little page. Yes, it's always nice when your murder mystery authors give you a list of characters. Yeah, it's nice. So the victim of this crime is Philip Lassio. Uh, a man who has stolen the wife of Marco Vukic. Vukic? Yes. It's a French word. Just like Archie Goodwin and uh, Rex Stout themselves say in the foreword of this novel, we don't know how to speak French. <laughs> yes, but basically what happens is there is a taste test competition to see which of the 15 master chefs can tell what ingredient is missing from a certain source. Mm-hmm. And each of them goes in one after the other to try and taste test it. Mm-hmm. All of these having been prepared by Philip Lassio. Mm-hmm. And after the taste test, Nero Wolf is the last to walk in. And what does he find? A corpse. A corpse. Philip Lazio with a knife in his back. There's a fantastic moment there where Nero Wolf comes back out of the kitchen and says, Archie, could you come join me? And they walk in and Archie's like, oh boy, I get to taste the food. I get to taste the food. <laughs> and then Nero's like, is that is that man dead? He's like, yeah, I guess we should probably do something about that. <laughs> it's so good. A pleasant holiday, I tell you, Archie. But no matter, is he dead? 
Dead as a sausage. Oh, I see. Archie, we have never been guilty of obstructing justice. That's a legal term. Let them have it. But this is not our affair. At least for the present. What do you remember about our trip down here? I think I remember we came on a train. That's about as far as I could go. He nodded. Call Mr. Savan. Like, he never explicitly mentions how disappointed he is, and some of the one-liners that he delivers in the moment are fantastic, but you can just slowly see his disappointment grow as the scene mm-hmm. goes on, and I love it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, so we're presented with this death of one Philip Lazio somewhere in the midst of these ten cooks. Um, the last person who says they've seen him is uh, Berian. So maybe maybe there's some lies happening there. I don't know. That's not up to me to find out. I already indeed, know what's going indeed. on. We'll speak about theories more coming up in the final part of the show today. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I think that you should know going forwards is that everyone thought that Philip Lassio was going to die. It's true. Everyone was threatening to kill him, but no one was really taking the threat seriously. Mm, including his wife. His wife came in and was like, somebody tried to poison my husband. And Neryl's like, well, I'm sorry, but I can't help with that because I'm not a bodyguard. I'm not a food tester. I'm not, I'm not able to help you. I only saw people after they're dead. It's great. There is, as we've said, so much character in this. Oh, I love him. But I do think that this is a very different take to any other murder mystery that we've covered on the show thus far, where normally we get the murder as a surprise, or we get the murder straight in the introduction. Mm. Here, we get two chapters of, this person is going to die. Mm -hmm. This person is going to die. And then they die. And nobody is surprised. And no one is surprised. No one could be surprised. It's such an excellent change of pace from the murder mystery norm. And it's not to say that there aren't other stories out there that have done this differently. But I think that the way that this story approaches it is incredibly unique and, again, very flavorful. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. This is Flex and Herds, and today we're discussing Too Many Cooks, a novel which bridges the gap between the warm comfort of food and the cold, hard facts of murder. And we've decided to chat today to Lucy Burdett, American author of the Key West Murder Mystery series. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Lucy, people tend to associate food with the cozy feeling of sitting down next to a nice meal among friends, and murders with the grisly world of crime. What motivated you to marry those two concepts in your own writing? Well, I, I can't say that I, that I came up with the idea because um, there have been murder mysteries involving food, food writers and cooks for a while. Probably I started because Diane Mott Davidson's series about a caterer um, was something that I really enjoyed. So when I thought about becoming a mystery writer, um, I thought of food. And uh, also, my editor at Penguin was looking for somebody who could write a series featuring a food writer, a food critic. And uh, that sounded like fun to me. So that's how I got started. And now the let's see, number number nine, number nine just came out, A Deadly Feast. Those concepts are very far apart. How do you go about blending them in a way that is uh, palatable, if you'll excuse the pun? All the action is seen through the eyes of my main character, who is a food critic. So some of the food is just, having to do with what she does in her daily life. But she also uses food in ways to connect with people and to find out what's happening with a possible murder suspect. And of course, there's poison, which I've used 
a couple times. I try not to overuse that. Yeah, and I know that in the most of the novels you've written, the premise kind of centers around uh, your your food creek detective Haley Snow being uh, put front and center in the action, either being accused of the crime or one of their friends or associates being accused. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think that modern audiences cannot simply have justice for the criminal as the the sort of stakes of the novel? Do we require this, you know, this extra emotional buy-in of a threat to the detective themselves? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think if you're familiar with Michael Conley's um, uh, novels, he has a character who is an LAPD uh, police detective. Mm. So he has as his job solving crimes and bringing people to justice. But I think the thing that makes his book so much more powerful than that is that he also shows us the inner life of his character and why his character is driven to do this job. So I think a novel, maybe in Agatha Christie's days, you didn't have to show a lot of what was going on with her characters. But these days, I think readers expect it. And as far as my series goes, in the first book, Haley was a suspect in a, in a death by key lime pie. <laughs> but you can't have her be accused of a murder in every book. It's just, I mean, the things are not that realistic anyway, mm. but that is really unrealistic. Yeah. So then it, then it becomes a question of figuring out which one of her friends or relatives might be in some trouble so that she is compelled to look, to look into, into the um, mystery. Because yeah. if it was me and there was a murder, I would run the other way. I would not do what she does. So you have to have some kind of reasonable thinking behind that. Yeah, I can definitely see that you've you've written uh, Haley Snow and her situation very much as a uh, a regular person would approach it. Um, and as we know, she's a she's a food critic, you know, thrust into unexpected situations, having to solve a murder. Uh, in Too Many Cooks, a novel that we're we're talking about this week, our detective Nero always has his trusty Archie by his side uh, to alleviate the pressure of his work. How does Haley cope with the pressure of solving a murder mystery? You know, every other week. Well, she has a, she has a roommate who's probably my most popular character. She's an eighty year old woman, and they live on a houseboat. And she really keeps her grounded. She, you know, keeps her laughing, and is a very sensible person who gives her good advice. So mm. that's one thing. She also has a friend. Um, I don't know how much you know about Key West, but it's a very quirky place with mm. all kinds of oddball characters rattling around. And one of the person I people I've become friends with is a tarot card reader. So he has become a character in the book. So if she is upset about something. I was a I was a clinical psychologist before I started writing. Rather than go to therapy, which is what I suggested to her, she will go and talk to the tarot card reader. Mm. And she cooks and she feeds people. That's a great pleasure for her. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very a very kind of realistic take on a, an amateur detective essentially being forced to, to solve these murders. Uh, you have to find some way to kind of to deal with it. And a tarot card reader, even though that may not be to everyone's taste, is, well, it's how many people deal with these sorts of situations. Uh, it's a very realistic kind of take on it, I think. Yeah. It's well, it's realistic for Key West. You wouldn't see sure. them <laughs> so much in the rest of the world, but um, 
he this guy in real life is a is a very smart person who ha- has a way of seeing beyond the surface. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're a clinical psychologist before you were an author. Obviously, you have these characters that reflect some of the experiences that you had in this job. Now, the early eras of American crime fiction often focused a lot on elements of psychology and how they thought they could be applied to the crime. How does your previous work inspire the actual crimes and puzzles that you write into your stories? Um, well, I think it's I think it's most helpful in that uh, I can really think about what makes people tick, both the bad guys and the good guys, and um, think about you know, murder is a very extreme um, action to take. So what could it be in this person's makeup? What kind of secrets could they have that they're trying to hide that they would be pushed to this? Before I wrote this foodie series, I I had another short-lived series that featured a, a clinical psychologist as the as the amateur sleuth. So that was fun. That was closer to who I really am. Yeah, I think it's uh, a very ambitious attempt to to show you know a murder mystery you know criminal as a realistic kind of person, not as just a force to be reckoned with, but as a real character in the novel. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd love to know uh, a little bit more about how you kind of put those criminals together, I suppose. What what are you drawing from in that instance? I, I often will start with um, the person that's going to be most involved in the crime. Mm. So, for example, in the second book, um, which was Death in Four Courses, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a food conference going on in Key West. And Haley's good friend, Eric, who is also a clinical psychologist, is um, becomes one of the suspects. So uh, she starts to try to even explore his background and see, is there some reason why he's covering up what he was doing at the place where the man was murdered? Because she doesn't believe he was murdered. And then also as she goes around listening to the talks about food and food writing that are happening in this conference, she is thinking about um, what is motivating these people. Um, So it really, I I would say the easiest way to describe it is secrets. Who is trying to hide what? And one of them is hiding the fact that they murdered someone, but the other people have powerful secrets too. And obviously, as a clinical psychologist, a large part of that job is uh, helping, you know, your patient to uncover their secrets and have them articulate, you know, what's going on with them, that sort of thing. It's, it's very similar because yeah. when when I, I was a therapist, someone would come into my office for the first time and I would say, how can I help you? And what they would tell me was the problem often didn't end up looking much like what we figured out in the end. Mm. but. Some, maybe they were hiding that from themselves, which a character also could do, or they were uh, didn't think it was relevant, or they were too too embarrassed to talk about it. But it's all those kinds of questions that I used as a as a psychologist that I can use in this writing too. 
Yeah, there's a lot of interesting parallels to the way that suspects and yeah. culprits are laid out in crime fiction. Well, Lucy, thank you so much for joining us on Death of the Reader. Mm-hmm. We really look forward to maybe later on down our murder mystery world tour getting the chance to cover some of your Key West novels. And I'm going to have to read that Rex Stout novel now. I'm a little ashamed that I haven't read it. <laughs> That's all right. Too many cooks. It's still two weeks left of the show. Plenty of time. Excellent. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds with Lucy Burdett, author of the Key West novels. And we'll be back with Rex Stout's Too Many Cooks in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour, and we are discussing chapters one to six of Too Many Cooks by Rex Stout. It's that part of the show where we discuss who is the killer of Philip Lazio. Yes, I am the blind man this time. Herds has seen all, mm-hmm. and it is up to me to determine who the killer is and inevitably be right, as always. That is highly debatable. Just because it's happened every time before this doesn't mean it will happen again. That's that's some kind of probability law. You are I'm you sure. are not wrong. You are not wrong. Thank you. So far, I have a pretty good success rate on picking the culprit in the first episode, but I will concede <laughs> to you. I will concede to you, Herds. I'm actually kind of stumped on this one. <gasps> have I finally found one? Oh, I, I can't don't, believe it. I don't think so. How you feeling? I think that the key to this murder mystery, mm. as the story kind of goes on to show you itself, mm. is where everyone was yes. in the dining room at the time that the murder took yeah. place. It's it's very interesting that the whole of chapter three is the murder. Now, the thing that we do know, and this is what I'm going to lean and rest on, uh-huh. is that <laughs> Dina Lazio did at one point go into the kitchen, and then Dina Lazio is the only person when we have left the kitchen that has a character moment that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and that is my whole theory. Are you telling that me is that, the whole are you telling theory me, right now. Are you telling me that she killed her husband? We're given the description of Dina uh, turning on the radio and going to dance with Vukic, so she could not have been in the room at least immediately before he went mm-hmm. in because she was dancing with him. So unless the murder occurred quite a bit before Berin went in, there's not really a lot of space there to work with. Yeah, there really isn't. And that's why I'm a little stumped by this one. Mm. I do not think that it is impossible to solve within the period of chapters that we have selected. Mm. However, Mm. the amount of evidence on which I could call it a solid theory is flimsy at best. Can I be very clear here? I have given you half of the book. Yeah. If murder mystery worth its salt should have enough clues in the first half of the book to solve its murder. I absolutely so. agree. I just don't think that this is a murder mystery that mm. will give you a solid bit of evidence. I do mm. think that the evidence is there, and that's why I'm still pinning it on Dina Lassio. <laughs> oh. All right? But well. let's let's be clear here. Rex Stout himself was an author who was not interested in the fair play of the genre. Then there should be a solution that makes sense. Yes. But (laughs) I I do think that this novel draws further away from my preferred style of puzzles Mm. than your Van Dynes and Ronald Knoxes of the world. Sure. If you're not sure on what we're talking about with Ronald Knox and SS Van Dyne, we do have episodes on the podcast explaining their list of rules on how to play the genre fair. But I think the ultimate detail for me, Herds, with this one. Yeah, Flex. Is... Dina Lassio coming out to dance with Vukic mm. and her with the radio. Mm. You think the radio was important? Because everything that everyone else does in that scene 
is very in character with what we've had them described. You know, there's an argument between a husband and wife who are separate from the Lazio couple, have nothing to do with it. It just kind of sets the scene. They run off in, in into the distance. A couple of characters leave because they don't like Philip Lazio and aren't seen for way later. And, you know, obviously they're meant to be the suspects, I think. But I think that because we are in that scene, because we are looking at what is happening for the entire time in which the murder could have happened, it must be someone in that scene. Mm. that is involved. Dina Lassio going up and flirting with her old husband, (laughs) who for the rest of the story she doesn't really seem to pay much mind to, and then going up to the radio, turning it on, dancing with Vukic, and then when they lose signal, going up and being like, oh, well, you know, the radio's not working. I'm done here. That seems to me like a cover. You think so? Yes. You think that she's a... Well, you think there's some kind of accomplice business going on here? I think so. What I am stumped on... What I am stumped on is who mm. actually put the knife <laughs> into Lazio, uh, Philip Lazio, that is. I think that Dina is responsible and involved in the crime and is covering for it by operating that radio, but I don't know who is the actual one wielding the knife. The uh, location of this murder is the, uh, well, specifically the Pocahontas Pavilion in Kanawa Spa. Yes. Uh, looked after by one Louis Savant. Mm-hmm. Now, what if he was responsible? What if Mr. Louis Savant, maybe he didn't even do the murder himself. Maybe he had one of the hired help to it. He has plenty of why, you know, servants. Why would he do spine. that? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe of he wants all to of the characters, Of all of the characters you could have picked, he seems to be the one that is least upset by Philip Lassier. But that's the trick. He oh, is the least that upset. That's, that's the and front. so he's the obvious like character who's done it, you know? You know, that's some real backwards logic. I'd love to know what scene in the book you're backing that up with. Chapter 6, Servan, Costanza, and Vukic come into uh, Wolf's apartment. Yes. And they offer him a large amount of money to try and clear Barin's name. But Servan doesn't actually say very much in that scene. You will notice. So once again, it is inaction that you are suggesting. That is exactly is what I'm saying. Right. I don't agree. You don't Shockingly agree? enough. Why don't you agree? I think... I think it's the obvious pick. What's his name? Liggett? I think that Liggett is a more likely culprit. Liggett? Yes. Why is he a likely Liggett, culprit? Liggett, who was out of, out of the state... That makes no sense. ...when the crime took a place and rocks up at the end of chapter six... Yeah, dude. ...or end of chapter five, rather, is more likely than Savan. Why is he likely? Because at least Liggett is made to seem suspicious. He's talking about stabbing people. He's talking about disliking people. It's true. They could always be a device X. They could always be like, maybe, maybe the radio was a signal for like a rope to be cut. You know what? Set up some kind of machine that would drop a knife into Lazio's back. But that's the thing. Everyone's like, why would you stab him in the back? You got to at least stab him in the front if you're going to kill someone. That's why. The trap. I I will concede as well that... (laughs) They do mention that he was killed behind a screen. Yes. Which means that even if they were trying to waste time killing him while no one was in the room, it wouldn't have mattered because you couldn't have seen back there anyway unless you had a keen eye like Nero Wolf. It's true. But. He's never at the right place at the right time. He's always his damn chair. He's always his chair. I will will say, Herds, if you're suggesting to me that I should throw out all rules of fair play. No, Then, yeah, let's go to Vice X. Ah! We're going to say that, you know, Philip Lazio had a... Disease that meant that when he tasted the wrong kind, oh my the wrong kind of sauce, he just he's developed a knife wound in his back. He's routed it's just a knife. A condition. <laughs> yeah, it's a family problem. I can't control it. What do I do? 
And That's this beautiful. is why fair play is important, Rex is. Stout. I will not stand for this nonsense. <laughs> I will not stand for you, Rex Stout, who okay. died in 1975 writing stories that are not fair play. <laughs> I will enjoys. not stand for it. I will not stand for it. We're going to go dig up his grave and let him know what's <laughs> no, what. No, that's too far. That's too far. <laughs> that's what I heard from We'll you. write a letter on, to his guys. publishers. Where's the lynch mob? Let's go. <laughs> don't. Please don't. We don't want to get in trouble that. So, yeah, I will say, I will say, I think that Dina Lassio is the ringleader. Okay. I will say that for the sake of having to pick someone, Leon Blanc is the knife wielder. Fair enough. I like it. Though I will say that there is an enormous amount of doubt on that second person. Uh-huh. Um, well, radio. Yeah. I, I I will concede, Herds, you have finally <laughs> given me a story where I cannot confidently say everything that oh. has happened in the first episode. Really Congratulations. I'm going to reach my hand across uh. the studio table, shake yours. Uh. Well done. Uh. You finally picked a novel. And I'm very curious to see if you do pick out uh, who the killer may or may not be uh, by the end of next week, because I will confess, I don't think that there are as many clues as I would like in a murder mystery. But hey, that's why this is your week to shine and not mine. <laughs> Good luck, sir. There is still a point on it, I hope. We're not just abandoning... Oh, no, there's a point. Okay, good, good. There's definitely a I point. Will be it's like certain. a chicken grease cover point. I will point. not rest until I have that culprit in handcuffs. Well, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> Maybe you can uh, you can saber in from his fate. Oh, dear. <laughs> Either way, this has been Death of the Reader. We have been discussing Too Many Cooks by Rex Stout. Chapters 1 to 6. We will be back next week with which chapters, Hurts? With 7 to 13. Chapter 7 to 13. And uh, maybe we'll learn some more wonderful recipes for murder. I'm really hoping. Yes. We should try one of these recipes and bring it into we the should. studio with us next We're week. We're going to find them. Apparently, they're very vague recipes that are mostly based off of the time of year and the like size of the stomachs of the people you're serving it for. Well, but let's right. give it a go. We are, we are, we are people who create solutions. Yeah, that's what we do. Scientists of murder and cooking. <laughs> let's do it. Put that on the resume. <laughs> Scientists of veteran cooking. Next time on Death of the Reader.